Whether you call it Road Plus, 27.5, or 650B, the bike industry at large has finally embraced the idea of a supple, wider, faster, and more comfortable tire. In my opinion, there's been one person in particular that's kept the notion of bikes like this alive for over the last decade, and that person is Jan Heine. He's a publisher of a very well-known underground, if you will, bicycling magazine called Bicycle Quarterly, as well as the founder of Compass Bicycles, the producers of all those super supple tires we love. In this episode of PLP Talks, we're going to talk about the origins of Bicycle Quarterly, his concept of planning, finally explained, and where he hopes Bicycle Quarterly and Compass of Bicycles will go from here. So this interview, like all the previous interviews, is uh, made possible by listeners and viewers just like you. So if you're enjoying this content, consider being a monthly subscriber. And this episode is also supported by Whitefish Bike Retreat. Learn more about them at whitefishbikeretreat.com. It's truly a magical place that caters to bike packers, bike tourists, mountain bikers, and gravel cyclists. You can either camp outside on their property or stay in one of their private rooms or bunk rooms. The Whitefish Bike Retreat also has a full-on bike repair area, as well as a small shop that lets you rent and buy bike packing gear so you can try before you buy. And there's also an amazing network of single track on property that connects to the larger Whitefish uh, single track network. So if you're passing through on your Great Divide journey or if you're just looking for a bikey place to base camp, definitely check out the Whitefish Bike Retreat. And with all that said, let's jump right in. So put on those earbuds, pretend like you're working at your desk, and enjoy the show. So everyone, welcome. Jan, how's it going? Thanks. I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Um, so I think one reason I really wanted to have you on the show is I feel like you've been one of the most influential people in uh, the contemporary bike culture in terms of how we think of tire width and what's you know a performance bike. Um, and I feel like I really started with Bicycle Quarterly. And you've had that now for 15 years. How did, how, what's the how and the why of starting BQ? That's a good question. First of all, I think you're too kind. I mean, we've really not done that much. We've built upon, upon the work of a lot of other people. How it all started? Um, I was writing for other magazines and uh, sort of researching all these stories. And I became fascinated by the, the French cyclotourists and random nurse because first of all, I've always enjoyed riding long distances. I've always wondered sort of how much further can you go and what's on the other side of the mountain. Um, and so I discovered that people have been doing this for more than 100 years. There was this great guy in France, Velocio, who said, you know, let's do a challenge. How far can we ride in 40 hours? And these people, all his readers, he had a magazine too. And the readers wrote back and said, I went to the top of Mont Ventoux and back. <laughs> and the next guy, I said, oh, and, and, you know, it's all these places. This was long before the Tour de France ever went over a mountain pass. And um, so they really inspired me. And then I discovered that the bikes that they developed also were just awesome. Like we were thinking about gravel roads and I said to my friend Mark, who said, let's go on gravel roads. I said, I don't want to ride a mountain bike from my house to the gravel road because that's like 40, 60 miles or something. And so we just stayed on the paved roads and I was racing at the time, you know, 21 millimeter tubulars and you don't go on gravel roads with that. And then I bought this old French bike, a Jour Routance, that was made for the Alps in 1952. And back then the roads were all half paved, half gravel. So it was sort of the all road bike that we needed. And suddenly I had a bike that I could take from my house to the mountains and then go on the gravel roads and come back. And it totally opened up a new, um, new world of riding. 
Mm-hmm. So how how was oh, that? Oh, and the magazine how it started? Yeah. <laughs> God, so. <laughs> yeah, so I answered a different question, I think. That's <laughs> <clears throat> fine. So how long how how long before that did you start the magazine? Or... The magazine started in between, sort of. What happened was I had these great stories. I went to France. I talked to these builders. Like the first guy I talked to was Ernest Trukov, uh, Alex Singer. And I thought, what am I going to do with this stuff? You know, I really need to tell this. This was before the internet and everything. So it's not like you could just put up a website. So the thought was to just start a newsletter for a few friends. And uh, sort of Xerox, it, you know, and just send it around and, and everybody can sort of comment and so on. And um, it was Grant Peterson who put in the Rivendell Reader a note. I wrote some articles for him and under one article, I put, well, I'm starting this newsletter. If you're interested, send $24. I had 140 subscribers before I had even put the first word to paper. Wow. I thought, Xeroxing isn't going to work here. So that's how it started, and it just took off from there. Right. After the first year, we had 700 subscribers, and now we're almost 6,000. Wow. That's pretty awesome. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> has, was there a certain time when you noticed like a really gross growth spike in the magazine or has it been like kind of slow and steady it's been steady you know there has been i mean there's always little spikes when we have a great story like the concrete machine the technical trials last year that was a big big thing that a lot of people got really excited about where we worked with peter weigel built a super light bike and so on but overall it's um it's just slow and steady yeah yeah i think it's like i first encountered the magazine um about nine or 10 years ago it was a, a friend of mine who you know had a rivendell you know he had a stack of uh you know bicycling and, and bicycle quarterly and it just blew my mind like to see like this different kind of bike that wasn't being spoken about and i think what's so cool is you know i think it was last year i was watching the gcn show and they referenced your show and i think they were talking about uh you, you know your, your studies in, in tire width and it's like whoa it's really kind of made like a, a leap to a, a somewhat larger audience <laughs> It's really exciting because the same joys that we found in our writing, you know, we wanted to share that. And now more and more people, like we went riding last weekend and for the first time on this gravel road in the hills, we saw a bunch of cyclists come the other way. And it was not just one or two, it was 15. It's just like, whoa, you know, and we've been going there for 15 years now. And it's just great to see other people enjoying the same kind of stuff. Right, right. Cool. Well, I think one of the the very first concepts that um, I was introduced uh, about from you was uh, the idea of planning, which I guess a lot of people have some difficulty with. Can you explain it in video? <laughs> in video. Well, what happened was, you know, the, the world was sort of split into these two camps about frame stiffness. Some people said stiffer is better and, you know, any ounce of or any millimeter of flex is energy wasted that doesn't go to the rear wheel. And then there were the sort of more scientific types like Jim Papadopoulos and so on who said, you know, there isn't that much energy going into the frame. It doesn't get hot. It, it can't be important. Mm-hmm. So I sort of subscribed to the, the scientific guys and said, <laughs> it can't matter. You know, if if people raced on Vitas's and Alans and won, you know, sprints like Sean Kelly, all these frames are stiff enough for me. Mm-hmm. We left it at that. So planning basically... we got this... Go ahead. So okay, mm-hmm. just, just describe the, the concept of how like oh, energy yeah. input and so, frame flex works. But what we found was that it's not that 
frame flex is detrimental. It actually can be beneficial. And I think people have known that for a long time, but what happens is that the rider's power output is not fixed. So it's not like you have 500 watts and you know if you have a flexible frame, 450 arrive at the rear wheel, if you have a stiff frame, 490 arrive at the rear wheel. But what actually is happening is that your power output could be 550 watts on one bike and 450 on another. And it's just like when you think about like a high, uh, um, a pole vaulter, you know, if that pole doesn't flex, they're not going to go anywhere. And so it's more like how much energy do you have and how much can you produce? And what we found in our studies is that if the frame flex is just right, you can put in more energy in the downstroke, which is where all the energy is put into the bike. Mm -hmm. And then as the frame springs back, if it does it at the right time, it actually helps propel the bike forward. Mm-hmm. And so the perfect frame is one that allows you to push really hard on the downstroke and then stores that energy for a quarter pedal stroke and smooths out your pedal stroke when you hit the bottom. So is there a relationship then between, say, like rider weight and, and planing? Like with that? I think absolutely. Yeah. I think rider weight, it's cadence, it's also how much power you put out. Like when we did our testing, we actually had uh, four bikes built that were identical except different frame tubing so that we could have a stiffer one uh we had two more flexible ones because we wanted to have a control as you do in scientific instrument uh, experiment you can't just have one because otherwise something else could be mm-hmm. messing up your whatever alignment or who knows what and then we had an oversized bike and we had three tenders and um there was one who couldn't tell the difference because they were all actually very close together. There was one who always was faster on the more flexible bike. And then there was one who was a little bit stronger, who was sort of in between. He could make both bikes work well. So clearly the power output matters. And I think we see that, especially in the past, when it was very easy to make different bikes for racers in the times of steel bikes, where in the 60s, a lot of racers had two race bikes. One for the stage races or for the for the road races, which was stiffer because a road race, you really win in a few accelerations. Mm-hmm. So it's like super high power output for 40 seconds and then you have your break or you don't or the final sprint and so on. And for time trials, they used a much more flexible bike mm-hmm. because there you're riding at the same power output for the whole time. And so when I realized that, I thought, you know, they were onto something, those guys. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um... So I'm curious about when, so you've, you've branched out into bike components in, in the last couple of years. When, when did you make yeah. that decision and, and why? Oh, we never made the decision. No. It just happened. <laughs> um, <laughs> it all started was when we did Bicycle Quarterly, we you know, had all these contacts all over the world. And so we found this great book about Vélocio in France that good friend published. And we said, well, you can't get in the US. How about we order it for our readers? How about the Japanese book about Renairs and so on? And so slowly we started building this program of stuff that you couldn't get. Mm-hmm. And then we discovered these French bikes and the old riders all told us, you know, there used to be these tires. You wouldn't believe it. These awesome tires. They were like high end racing tires, but they were like 42 millimeters wide. And you would think they'd be slow, but they weren't. They were super fast. And I mm-hmm. thought, I need those tires. <laughs> Well, how do you get those tires? You know, first we did some studies and we thought, okay, we studied and we showed that wider tires can be as fast. The bike industry will immediately make those tires because it's obvious. Well, guess what? 
No. It didn't. <laughs> so then we figured, if we want these tires, we need to make them ourselves. So we worked with people in Japan, Panaracer, and we started introducing tires because we said, well, you know, we know how to make these tires. We know exactly. I mean, Panaracer knows how to make tires, but we know what we want from those tires. So we go to them and we say, well, can you use the casing for your high-end tubulars? Mm-hmm. And can you make it 42 millimeters wide? And at first they said, well, why would you want to do that? And I said, well, because we believe that these tires can be as fast and, you know, ride over rough terrain and back roads and so on. So that's really interesting. Let's try. Mm-hmm. Um, and so other things followed. And uh, it's mostly just we want to ride stuff on our own bikes. And nobody makes it. And right. so then we start making it. Sometimes we make one-offs, but usually it's easier to just, you know, plus once I show something on the blog or in the magazine, everybody wants it. Right. So it's <laughs> like, you know, I bought a pair of cyclotouring knickers in Japan and I started wearing them because I thought, you know, it's just much nicer to be a little more dressed when you go into like a rural grocery store and you're not like, yeah, you know, this, this sort of uh, curiosity. Right. And then everybody said, where can I get those? I said, well, you need to go to Japan and shop <laughs> <laughs> well that wasn't so useful so then yeah. i thought we should just make them so we're working with a local um shop here in seattle who sews them here in seattle for us and that's how a lot of these projects have started that's it's cool. usually just stuff we ourselves yeah yeah awesome <clears throat> so when you first went to panaracer did you have a tire design or did you say i like the, this component from this tire and the tread on this tire put together, or did you have like historical examples of tires you were pulling from? It was a combination of everything. And then we also talked to them and say, these are the attributes you want. We want, how can we get that? And they said, Oh, how about this? I mean, they have engineers who know a lot of stuff about how to make it, but you need to ask the right, right question of those guys. Mm-hmm. You know, if you say, I want a super puncture resistant tire that I can ride through hell and, and you know, broken glass and nails, they'll make that for you. Um, but the question always is like one thing that they didn't think, one thing that nobody really realized was that tire pressure doesn't affect your speed. I think that was the most revolutionary thing we found in our testing. And it was just really simple. We wanted to find out how much do we give up if we lower the pressure a little bit? Because when we ride, say you ride Paris, Brest, Paris, that's 765 miles. If you don't get beat up, it's perfectly fine to lose a little energy. Mm-hmm. And we thought, where is that perfect point where we're starting, like, 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 like the kink in the curve, you know? Where, let's say, at 110 PSI, we might be 1% faster, but at 95 PSI, we're 10% more comfortable. So we're willing to give up 1% speed for 10% comfort. But what we found out is we're not giving up any speed. We're just like, this can't be. So we tested it. We tested with different methods. We tested with different tires. But basically, the bike goes, you know, wobbling all over the place before it gets lower. Right. (laughs) So it becomes unrideable before you lose actual speed. And when we realized that, it was sort of the whole conundrum of why tires disappeared. Because in the past, it was always... We know in theory a wider tire is faster, but in practice, a wider tire cannot support high pressures because it's the casing under more stress. So you need to make the casing stronger, which makes the tire slower, or you need to run it at lower pressures, which we thought made the tire slower. Mm-hmm. But once we found out you can ride the tire at lower pressures and not be slower, that opened up the whole world. We said, well, we can make the casing not stronger, 
and just reduce the pressure. And now I'm riding, you know, 40 PSI, 35 PSI, and I'm easily keeping up with guys, you know, on racing bikes with 23 millimeter tires pumped up to 115 PSI or so. Mm -hmm. I wish I knew that when I was racing. <laughs> Man, it would have been so much more fun. <laughs> <laughs> why, why do you think it, it took so long to, um, to kind of question these kind of uh, preconceptions that we had? In terms of tire There's pressure. a very powerful placebo effect. When you pump up the tire harder, it changes the frequency of the vibrations of the bike. It makes them makes a higher frequency. But when you go faster, you also get a higher frequency because you know you cover more ground for the same amount of time. So you hit the little irregularities faster. So pumping up your tires harder makes the bike feel faster without actually going faster. I discovered that once I was riding with my friend Mark and I had done some testing day before, two days before, and I had forgotten to let the air out of the tires. I had pumped up these 30 millimeter tires to 120 PSI, which, I mean, it was dangerous, but, you know, we sort of take some risks sometimes. <laughs> so I'm riding next to him and I'm saying, you know, we're going quite a bit faster than we're usually going. He is the one who has a computer on his bike. He looks down and says, nope. <laughs> so what you mean? So we always go whatever, 19 miles an hour here. But but it feels faster. Mm -hmm. And then I remembered, oh, <laughs> I still have 120 PSI in my tires. So I stop, let out the air of the tires, and then we're back to normal speed. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh, so you've, you've had the chance to uh, test a lot of the bikes for Bicycle Quarterly. Uh, what's been the hardest test bike to, to return? Well... There's one I didn't return. <laughs> <laughs> I bought. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not necessarily that that was the best. There are so many great bikes. And I just returned one that we'll have in the spring issue that um, I wish I could have kept. Yeah. Um, usually, like, you know, the Firefly behind me, I bought it because I wanted a bike like that. I wanted a modern race bike, but with really wide tires. And um, so I kept it. Yeah. Um, there's some other ones which are just as great, but I already have a bike like it, so there's no need, you know. And many of the bikes we get, sometimes the builders, especially small builders, they can't just build a bike for us, so it's a customer's bike. So it's already spoken for. That's actually the hardest one to test because if we find something that's not so great about it, the customer hasn't even ridden the bike yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, of uh. Do you have any uh, production bikes that you, you really like in your testing? Well, depends on what this production. We we thought the open um, UP was, was a pretty cool bike, uh, but of course costs the same as most custom bikes. <laughs> um, there were some surprising ones. There was a Breezer City bike that actually planed. It had a aluminum frame that wasn't very oversized, it was great fun sprinting from traffic light to traffic light here in Seattle. Um, so it's how to say it's, I guess it's like so many things at that price point. Nobody really pays that much attention to the finer details. Sometimes you get lucky. Sometimes you don't. Mm -hmm. So when you, when you get a bike to test, like how do you cleanse your, your palate? So you have kind of like an empty space to, to feel all the aspects of the bike. They just get on it and ride. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, usually we switch the tires because tires sort of change the feel of the bike so much and they're so easy to change. So we just put the same tires 
you know, in different widths, but on every bike so that we're not testing tires because, you know, you put a, something like a puncture resistant Schwabi marathon on any bike, it'll feel totally different. But beyond that, you just go for a ride and, you know, usually, especially when you ride with friends, you're talking not about bikes, about anything. Mm-hmm. And so you sort of forget the whole bike thing and the bike intrudes when it does things that you don't expect or you never notice the bike and you say, man, this is a great bike. We just rode, you know, 75 miles and not once did I think about the bike, <laughs> you know, so it's sort of the best bike is the one that you don't notice. And, you know, people sometimes think because we focus so much about bikes and technology that we're constantly thinking about bikes. But I think about my bike when I'm not riding so that I don't have to think about it when I'm riding. Right. <laughs> you know, the worst bike is one that breaks down. Suddenly you're stopped. Right. I mean, it's impossible to forget the bike at that point. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the bike that, you know, where you go up a hill and suddenly your friend who usually rides the same pace is pulling away on his bike. You're saying, well, what's happening? So then you switch bikes. Fortunately, we're the same height and same power output. And suddenly I'm pulling away and you say, wait a minute, you know, there's something here that clearly, you know, we're both putting out more power on that bike than this bike or vice versa. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first re- time we really thought about planing was when we had this test bike. Neither of us liked it. It was a racing bike. Color scheme was definitely not our taste. They sent it to us completely unassembled. So it was a pain to build up. I mean, if I ever didn't like a bike, mm-hmm. it was probably that. Yeah, <laughs> And then I was riding and I thought, you know, it feels faster than usual. But of course, I didn't tell Mark when he wrote it that I thought that because I don't want to bias him. So we're riding and we're going up this hill and I'm thinking, I'm going to test him. I'm going to accelerate really hard in two stages. First ones, because, you know, I mean, there's psychology involved. And it's all these games. We're good friends. It's not like, you know, we're trying to beat each other. It's more like, like you know, when you play Monopoly or something, you want to you wanna come first. But right. it's not, you know, not because you don't like the other guy. <laughs> And I look back after the second acceleration and my friend's not there anymore. And I'm thinking, whoa, that bike is not as fast as I thought. And then I realize he's actually passing me in my blind spot. I'm looking to the left and he's passing <laughs> me on the right and he's gone. I'm just thinking, yeah, I don't like getting beaten. And this is my own bike that I'm riding. And, you know, I'm very proud of my bike <laughs> and I don't want it to get beaten. And we get to the top and Mark says, this bike's really fast. And I say, I, I think you're right. So then we weigh his bike down, you know, we switch bikes and it doesn't matter. It's like, it was clear. We, we were both putting out way more power on that bike, no matter how hard we tried on the other one. Oh, and then we both realized we need new bikes. <laughs> nice. So it's been, the last couple of years have been really interesting in terms of, uh, I guess, more mass produced bikes because we're seeing kind of, Bikes, bike design shift to taking wider tires, 650B. Um, so what do you think of this trend? I mean, I feel like you, you know, BQ definitely had like a hand in at least like carrying the torch for, for other people to get excited about it. <laughs> it's really, really cool. I'm, I'm super excited about it because in the past, you know, readers contact us and said, hey, you know, what can I do? Where can I find a bike? And at first we said, it's easy. You go to France, you find the 1952 Jeux and you know, then you need to dig up some tires because nobody is making 650B tires. But there's a company in Japan called Mitsuboshi that still makes some decent ones, but they just went out of production. So, <laughs> so good <laughs> you luck. Get the idea. <laughs> exactly. And then we said, hey, you know, there are now these custom builders in the US like Mitch Pryor and Peter Weigel and so on who make these bikes. 
you only need to wait two years on the deposit and so on and so on. If you really know what you want, that's great. You get a bike that's incredibly wonderful. You know, it's like a custom tailored suit or something. It's it's something that you can't buy mm-hmm. usually. And with bikes, it's amazing that actually somebody like like I can like me can afford that. You know, I mean, I could never afford a custom built house or custom made car or whatever. Um, but still, you know, most people want to go to a bike shop, test ride five bikes, and then ride one uh, ride one home. Mm-hmm. And you can do that now. Mm-hmm. There's some really good ones. I'm really, really excited about that because, you know, in the past, people had the choice between a hybrid and a racing bike and a mountain bike. And you just thought, well, what if we could get the best of all of those into one bike? And now we have that. Yeah, that's, that's, been, my, that's been my favorite thing about this whole adventure bike, gravel bike trend. It's, it is like the best of all bikes. You know, you don't have to choose between like a pure, stiff road race machine or like an extreme mountain bike machine or a really slow hybrid just there's something that you know it's kind of like the jack of all trades uh bicycle yeah i mean it's amazing how i was just talking to my friend mark about that how when he specced his first custom bike he thought he would have a bike where he can take parts off put them on you know the fenders come off easily he can switch tires he can switch everything and he realized i don't need that so his next bike was one where nothing ever changes but he can do everything with it mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm almost uh, scared that the bike industry will leave this golden age and you know build super specialized bikes again. So I want to like stockpile and hoard all the components and tires while they're in vogue. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I mean, bike industry is completely unpredictable. I agree with you. Nobody knows. Maybe it's time trial bikes next. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what's been your most favorite accomplishment that you've had with the magazine and with the component part of the business? That's a hard question. I don't know. I think um, hearing from people, there was one reader who wrote to us and said, Bicycle Quarterly has changed the way I enjoy cycling with my wife. Mm-hmm. and um, Or my wife and I or something. But, you know, so just people going out there and pushing their boundaries and inspiring them to to not be limited by anything except their imagination. And that can be broadened. You know, it's. I think that's the most wonderful part that you know the bike doesn't matter Mm -hmm. so i had a question from uh, one of our um, instagram followers and he he asked uh, do you have any time to sleep it seems like you're producing media you know going overseas creating components like does it just like consume uh your your daily life it can get pretty busy um but you know i'm really lucky that part of my job is to write about bike rides and to (laughs) test bike components and to to (laughs) think about them so at least i must ride my bike so yeah it's okay yeah (laughs) it's a lot of fun i mean certainly if you don't enjoy it it's not a career i would recommend (laughs) is there any uh any bike trend that you're excited about that you see down the road i'm really excited that um the narrow tire racing bike is being replaced by the all-road bike and I'm really excited that people take it really seriously now. At first, it was like, oh, well, you know, we're going to make you some sort of heavy touring bike that, <laughs> you know, that you can put the kitchen sink on. And those are great bikes and those are necessary bikes. But I'm really excited now when you look at, you know, what Open is doing or 3T with their, with their Explore or stuff, where you get a full-on race bike, you know, 18 pounds carbon fiber that can take 48 millimeter tires. Mm-hmm. And um, 
it's sort of the, the, the dream that we had. I remember we talked about all road bikes in 2007. We said, we're envisioning this new breed of bikes. Like we were saying, you know, it combines the best of everything. And that's happening now. And I don't think that's going to ever go away because it's just like the mountain bike. It's stuck around for, you know, so long because it feels neat. I mean, I think the all road bike even more really feels a need. And I don't think people will forget again that the wide tires can be as fast as narrow ones. Right. Right. I hope I not. Hope not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I forget who it might have been Grant who said like if you like something, buy like a, a lot of it because you never know when it's going to go back out of style. <laughs> um, oh, that's a pessimistic view. I think the opposite is the case. I did stockpile on some things, and they're lying unused in the basement because we have very better stuff now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, there was sort of back when when I got into it too. There was this whole feeling of oh steel frames are going away we thought even spoked wheels would go away you know spinergies and whatnot and look where we're now you know mm -hmm. we have everything i mean you can even buy renair's crank again which <laughs> sort of when i started i thought it'd be so nice to have one of those on my bike and of course it's not going to happen and, you know right of course it can happen <laughs> otherwise we just have to make it happen yeah <laughs> yeah i think it's cool like how you know you it sounds like you started Bicycle Quarterly because you needed an outlet for this interest. And it just drew other interested people together and then created a demand. So it kind of, you know, facilitated, you know, the production of, you know, tires and components for, for that interest. It's It's been a pretty cool cycle to watch. Yeah, I mean, it's fun because it's also great for us because we don't need to do marketing. We don't even... I mean, the product development is riding through the mountains saying, oh, we could improve this. Usually it's like on day three of a long trip, you know, we think, oh, this could be improved. Sometimes something breaks and you say, oh, why did it break? Oh, now I understand why they didn't do it this way in the past, you know, and stuff <laughs> like that. So that means we can spend all our money on making better products mm -hmm. and, um, and still make them relatively affordably. And I think that's a huge advantage over, say, a traditional company that has a bunch of marketing guys and needs to do focus groups. Where are the trends heading? We don't care where the trends are heading. You know, we're thinking, what do we need? What do other people need for the type of riding that we enjoy? Mm -hmm. What's the um, kind of the R&D to finish product cycle look like for you? Like the length of time it takes from, oh, I have this idea to, to seeing it in fruition? <laughs> it all depends. Um, Sometimes it can be a decade, yep. you know, like the Renier cranks, for example, we thought about, and then we said, well, what can we do? And then we got some estimates and we said, yeah, we could probably do this. And then we thought, well, let's do some other projects first and so on. And then we thought about, well, what could we do better? Because there are things that they couldn't do in the past. Like we curved our crank arms a little bit to give you a little more heel clearance. Incredibly difficult to make a forging die that's not straight in the old days before um, mm -hmm. computer modeling. Now it's same cost, same whatever. So of course we did that. Small things like that. Um, there's a lot of testing, you know. Um, you can test in the lab, we do that. And you get 100,000 cycles in three days, which is great. Mm -hmm. But are those cycles really what's happening on the road is a question that nobody really knows. So then you test it on the road too, and that takes a while. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't ride the 10,000 miles in the weekend. <laughs> yeah. So do you, do you guys have any interesting new products coming down the pipeline that you can talk about? <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of, we have a lot of uh, things that we're thinking 
about, then we develop them all in parallel. And then at some point, they come to the fore. I think the exciting part is the 11 speed chain rings that we are introducing. We introduced the 4630. And our goal was to make the shifting as good as the best in the world because putting ramps and pins in the chain ring is very, very easy mm-hmm. unless you really want to do it right. And then it's incredibly difficult <laughs> because it's, it's, it's a complicated system and it's a dynamic system. Like, you know, many makers wrap the chain around the crank beautifully and you can, you know, put it on your workbench and you say, oh, this is how it works until you pedal at 90 RPM and then it doesn't work so well anymore. Right. And then you look at the best guys and it doesn't work on the workbench, but it works out on the field because they are taking those things into consideration. Mm-hmm. And so that was a big project and we're excited there will be some other chain ring combinations of course that was just the first one we introduced mm-hmm. we also like to introduce things one by one so that if we can improve it next one can be better and then at some point the first one might be phased out rather than investing in tooling for five of them and then realizing oh we could have although with this one there isn't anything yet that we think should be better so yeah cool <clears throat> so where do you see uh, bicycle quarterly going in the future well, we always try to keep it fresh and exciting. So our goal is to think about what what we can do that's new, that's that brings something different to the to the to the table that that excites and inspires people. Because our goal is not for somebody to sit in their armchair and just say, "Oh wow, that's so cool," but more like, "I want to do that." And you know, we might ride over a mountain pass in Japan, but if you live in Appalachia, well. The mountain passes there too. Mm-hmm. So our goal is not to say you need to do something, you know, travel to wherever, but more like, and that's why we don't publish often, you know, route sheets and stuff like that, because we figure you're going to write completely in a different place, but mm-hmm. we want to inspire you like, oh, we can do that. Just like we were inspired by those old French guys mm-hmm. who, you know, rode at night across mountain passes and wrote about the full moon and stuff. I thought, I want to do that. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm sure you guys will definitely continue to inspire. Um, I mean, it sounds like you guys have uh, really kind of shaped like a certain niche and generation of, of cyclists to embrace uh, these bikes. So someone asked, this is kind of interesting. Um, you know, you talk, about, you talk a lot about uh, tire choice. How about rim and wheel choice? Is there, um, do you see some rim wheel combinations that, that work better or that interface better with the tires that, that you guys use? interesting question i think especially with the wider tires the tire is so flexible and the rim is so stiff that again the rim mostly matters if it doesn't work like if the tire blows off if the tire doesn't seat correctly if the wheel goes out of true but with the modern tubeless ready rims the tolerances are very tight otherwise it just doesn't seal so we're really lucky that especially if you use tubes which is kind of ironic but if you use tubes on the tubeless ready rim you're not going to have any problems with your wheels ever and um how to say i think that's sort of the the main thing um some people think that the wider rim is better for wider tires but when the tires get really supple the sidewall flexes so much that it's not really supporting the tire that much. The, the original idea was if you have more U-shape, you know, where the tire is like this, then the sidewalls are vertical and the bike stands on those sidewalls versus an O-shape 
where it can much easier, more easily compress. But with a supple tire, it doesn't really matter that much. The extreme is a tubular, which basically has a zero rim width because you know you have the the tire on top of the rim. Mm-hmm. Um, still works great. Yeah. And you know, no pro racer says, "Oh my gosh, I can't corner because my tubular tire and so on." You know? Right. So you need to run a little higher pressure with a supple tire, simply because the rubber doesn't hold up the tire. It's still more comfortable and still faster, but you know, the extreme is is a really stiff tire that even if you take the inner tube out, it still stands up. Like only when you sit on the bike does it actually <laughs> compress and become flat. Yeah. Um, so, so let's say let's take a tire that's forty two millimeters. Do you have like a an ideal like rim width that you think inter, interfaces best with that kind of tire width? You know, I have 42s on a 20 millimeter wide right. <laughs> rim on my city bike in the front, and it doesn't seem to matter. And then I have 25 millimeter rims on another bike. It's not that important with yeah. our tires. I think aerodynamics, it probably matters, but then the aerodynamics of the wheel compared to the aerodynamics of the rider don't matter again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's again, if you have a tight fitting jacket, you gain way more than you would with an aero set of aero wheels. We tested that in the wind tunnel for bicycles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Nice. laughs> no, I think, I think the really, the, the important part is, is not even the equipment so much. The equipment just enables us to do stuff. It's just like a hiker who has great hiking boots. When you meet them on the trail, they're not going to tell you about the hiking boots. <laughs> oh man, I have these, you know, there. no, they'll tell you, I saw a cougar back there (laughs) and you know the sunrise was beautiful and this trail you know and it's tough going up the hill or something and that's how i see the bike yes the bike has to be really really carefully thought out so that you don't it doesn't limit you Mm -hmm. you know the worst thing that can happen is that yeah bad things happen to your bike on the trail but even if the bike doesn't handle great or if it doesn't climb well then you don't want to go in the mountains and that's where the most beautiful riding is yeah to me it's really exhilarating when you look down into the valley and you say wow i came all this way <laughs> and it just feels great you feel like a you know like an eagle soaring on an updraft mm-hmm. and uh, on the gravel road you also have that little bit of slip between the tires and the wheel that sort of gives you a sense of freedom as you ride the bike that it's not as prescriptive like on the road you're either gripping or you're crashing mm-hmm. and on gravel you're always sliding a little bit and how much you know and so you play with the bike more it's it's to me it's really really fun well i think i'm gonna end the interview on that note um thank you so much jan for being on the show and if you guys uh enjoyed this video don't forget to like share subscribe if you have any other further questions leave those in the comments and thank you and definitely everyone check out bicycle quarterly if you're not already familiar familiar with it and uh, thanks for joining us hey thanks a lot for the interview it's fun yeah Thank you once again for spending time with us and listening. And if you enjoyed the show and you discovered it via iTunes on in your podcasting app, uh, leave a rating, leave a review, and help the show out. And until next time, ride bikes, travel, and do good. <laughs>